Um, well, welcome everyone today to Critical Care Grand Rounds. Um, it is my absolute pleasure to my absolute pleasure to introduce a friend and former colleague of mine, Dr. Ian Barbash. Um, so Dr. Barbash did his uh, medical training at Harvard Medical School, as you may have just heard him and Nick discussing, um, and then did his internal medicine residency training at Mass General. Um, University of Pittsburgh was lucky enough to recruit him to do their, his fellowship there, where he's been as a faculty member since he completed his fellowship. Um, Ian has focused on uh, uh, mostly sort of large data and electronic health record work while he's been at Pittsburgh, but then took over in this capacity of running the telemedicine and setting up a, a telemedicine to cover ICUs during the COVID pandemic. So it's my pleasure to have uh, Dr. Barbash here talking to us today about the use of ICU telemedicine in a COVID-19 pandemic. Um, Dr. Barbash, I'm so ha happy to have you here today. Thank you for coming to share with us. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's my pleasure and honor to get to speak with you all today. Um, so yes, I, I've done a lot of health services research and um, have, have taken on an exciting new role since the pandemic began. Um, so I'm going to be speaking to you a little bit about, you know, what we did during the early phases of the pandemic and moving forward uh, in the world of ICU telemedicine. Um, you, you may have heard I have multiple small children and, and we've all been uh, dealing with various respiratory illnesses for a week. So I apologize if my voice begins to degrade as the talk goes on. My only disclosures are that I'm employed by UPMC and Pitt, um, and I'm the medical director of the tele-ICU. Uh, I do not have commercial disclosures. So the interesting thing is that I, I think we often think of telemedicine as a, a modern entity. Um, in fact, this quotation here easily could describe a, a lot of what's happened just in the last couple of years. So it says, we hypothesized that telemedicine can solve some problems related to the scarcity and maldistribution of specialists in critical care medicine using a two-way audiovisual link between a small private hospital and a large university medical center we have provided daily consultations by an intensivist to the small institution um, so however th this was written a long time ago uh, in an emergency medicine journal published 35 years ago um, and so like many things, you know, it's not clear that sort of anything is new under the sun. Um, and while things have certainly changed at its core, telemedicine kind of remains the same as it was decades ago. Today, when we're talking about ICU telemedicine, it's important to remember that we're not really talking about just one thing. Uh, there really is a spectrum of care models that exist in the ICU telemedicine space. To one end of the spectrum, is a much more sort of hardwired approach, often sort of in the, the classical idea of a, a telemedicine bunker or command center where there might be multiple monitors with uh, data streams from bedside monitors coming in to see heart rate tracings and other uh, monitoring data, hardwired cameras in rooms, um, and frequently both physicians and, and non-physicians like nurses or advanced practice providers uh, in this command center. Uh, given all these resources, there's a lot of monitoring that happens and, and frequently proactive outreach to the bedside. And it also related to all of those resources, these models are fairly costly uh, to implement um, and even to sustain because of the staffing resources required. At the other end of the spectrum is a different model uh, that often uses somewhat more flexible technology with less hardwiring, maybe a lot of mobile devices, 
Um, these models tend to be necessarily reactive because they don't have a lot of data uh, proactively flowing into the telemedicine uh, viewer. They respond to requests for help from the bedside as opposed to proactively monitoring and reaching out. As they also are often provider to provider models, meaning that uh, the telemedicine physician is interacting with some non-intensivist physician at the bedside rather than, for example, uh, a nurse without a provider present. And as a result, these models are, are less expensive both to implement and to sustain. And of course, in between these things, there's a whole range of different models that include elements of each. Um, so again, it's just important to remember, it's not really just one thing. And, and what you need to sort of know a little bit more about the elements of the telemedicine model before understanding, you know, how it might work. So what hospitals use ICU telemedicine? These are data from before the pandemic. Uh, so data from 2018 published in 2020. Uh, and they, they surveyed, they, or they analyzed data from a national survey of hospitals uh, and found that about a quarter of hospitals use ICU telemedicine in some form. It didn't have a lot of detail in the survey about you know, what I just spoke about, about sort of what particular type of model exists. But a lot of variation in this graph on the uh, penetrance within states uh, in terms of the proportion of hospitals that use ICU telemedicine. And I think importantly, these authors also found that it's less common in smaller hospitals, critical access hospitals, and rural hospitals. That's important because you know, one might think that those are the very hospitals in which ICU telemedicine might be most important and impactful, uh, as opposed to, you know, larger hospitals and urban centers where there might be more actually in-person uh, intensivist resources available. So these were interesting data, um, and we don't yet have data of this quality on sort of what has happened to the landscape of telemedicine adoption in the wake of the pandemic. It begs the question, of course, you know, does it work? Um, like many things in medicine, the answer is probably not going to be a singular yes or no. Uh, there have been a lot of studies of individual programs or of sort of small multi-center multi programs looking at uh, the impact of telemedicine. This is a, a large national study looking at changes in mortality in association with the implementation of ICU telemedicine using Medicare data. Uh, this is done by my mentor, Jeremy Kahn, and his research group. Um, and what they did was they paired hospitals that adopted ICU telemedicine with similar hospitals that did not adopt ICU telemedicine in the same time frame, uh, and then essentially aggregated those data into what's effectively a meta-analysis of case control studies. And you can see from this graph that there's wide variability in the mortality ratio between the paired hospitals before and after implementation, with some hospitals in the red box having actually an increase in mortality in the uh, ICU telemedicine implementing hospitals, and some hospitals having a decrease in mortality relative to the control paired hospitals. And then a lot in the middle with small changes that were statistically insignificant. And so there's really a lot of variation, and it begs the question, why? You know, what, uh, what drives this variation in effectiveness of, of telemedicine implementation? And so my mentor and his group also uh, followed that large quantitative study with this uh, qualitative study in which they went in and interviewed 
individuals within the telemedicine units and the target ICUs and hospitals from both high-performing and low-performing uh, telemedicine implementers in a positive-negative deviance uh, approach. It was a really interesting uh, study and uh, a really well-executed study from a qualitative standpoint. What emerged from this uh, evaluation is a conceptual model of uh, effective telemedicine care delivery, which found that effective care is really driven by its appropriateness, its responsiveness, its consistency, and the degree to which it's integrated with the care in the target ICU. So what is, so appropriate means the recommendations from the telemedicine intensivists are reasonable, they're evidence-based, they're perceived to sort of make sense by the bedside team. Uh, they're responsive, both from a time standpoint, so if someone reaches out for help, they get a timely response, but also responsive to the question that's being asked. So, you know, I, as a responsive telemedicine intensivist, don't get a question about the ventilator and provide input on 11 extraneous elements of care that the care team didn't perceive that they needed input on. Regardless of whether or not it might be true, it's not perceived as being particularly responsive to the needs at the bedside. It's consistent. So you get the same answer on Tuesday from Dr. Smith about a general the general care of a patient with septic shock from, you know, a UTI, as you do on Wednesday from Dr. Jones. Uh, you don't get widely varying uh, recommendations about similar clinical scenarios. Um, and it's integrated, meaning um, in two ways. One is that, you know, the, the, for example, care protocols might be shared across the, uh, the telemedicine unit and the target ICU. You know, how do, how do you select a patient for a spontaneous breathing trial? Um, you know, what's a reasonable sort of sepsis resuscitation bundle. Um, and in fact, sometimes it's truly integrated in the sense that uh, there might, in some of these units, there was a telemedicine unit that was like co-located in the same hospital or even across the street from the hospitals supported by the tele-ICU unit. Uh, and so the staff might be shared. So some, you might work some shifts in that, in your target ICU and some shifts in your uh, ICU telemedicine unit. Um, and if that's the case, you can imagine it's quite easy to align care and expectations. Uh, a number of features of uh, the telemedicine unit and the, the structure overall can facilitate these uh, characteristics of telemedicine. So the way that the that the telemedicine unit and the target ICU are led and the way those leaders communicate with one another can filter down. Uh, the way that telemedicine is perceived at the bedside can both drive uh, the effective care and of course the way the care is delivered feeds back uh, through staff perceptions and can affect the perceived value. And so you can imagine you can create these both positive feedback loops and negative feedback loops based on early experiences uh, with implementation. And then the organizational characteristics of the tele telemedicine model can affect its effectiveness. I just mentioned one, for example, like shared staff between the, the two units is one example of an, of an organizational characteristic. So this was a, a really important study, a, a nice roadmap for how to approach uh, implementing and designing a telemedicine model that's likely to achieve the goals that you're aiming for. And into this context comes the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, which has several features which made the value proposition around ICU telemedicine even more attractive. Uh, first is that smaller hospitals really were 
forced to care for many more and many sicker patients than they ever had before because a lot of the transfer networks uh, to tertiary and quaternary care just broke down because of capacity constraints at those tertiary and quaternary care sites. Uh, at the same time, there was a reduced supply or at least concerns about the potential for a reduced supply of trained intensivists due to a combination of illness, quarantine, and burnout. Uh, and that last element, burnout, really has not gone away. It's a persistent and pervasive problem across all of healthcare, not unique in the ICU environment and certainly not unique to physicians. Uh, but there was a particular concern about the intensivist workforce and so a potential need to think more about telemedicine. Uh, and just like there's always been, there's a real uneven distribution of intensivists. So intensivists tend to be concentrated in urban areas and in academic centers, uh, despite the fact that there are critically ill patients everywhere, including in rural communities and small hospitals uh, that may not have access to intensivists. And so frankly, meeting the clinical demand for critical care expertise during the pandemic was simply not possible using bedside intensivists. Even if a hospital or a health system wanted to throw millions and millions of dollars trying to recruit people to the bedside, it was not going to be possible at scale to meet the need for critical care expertise at the bedside by just putting intensivist bodies in all the places where they might possibly be needed. So given that, there was a lot of interest in the adoption of, of ICU telemedicine. Uh, it's reflected in a lot of news stories and also just in the literature. So there's this big spike in the number of publications related to ICU telemedicine in 2020. Another way that, that ICU telemedicine could be relevant during the pandemic was as a component of regional critical care management. Um, so this is a sort of a, a you know a cartoon about how tele telemedicine might facilitate uh, managing critically ill patients within a region. So you can imagine there might be multiple hospitals, some of which are community hospitals with lower um, care capabilities, uh, some intermediate level hospitals, and then tertiary and quaternary medical centers, uh, where often the the physical workforce is larger. Um, and so if you were to design a telemedicine model that used uh, intensivists at a centralized location to provide support to other hospitals, they could, you know, reach out to community hospitals with trained capacity and uh, help them identify maybe patients who could be transferred elsewhere um, versus patients who, for example, were simply dying and, um, and needed comfort care on site and could provide cognitive input to care teams, as I said, who were caring for much sicker patients than they ever had before, uh, mechanically ventilated patients with a long time on the ventilator, uh, things like that. Um, these models rely on shared data resources, right? So you can imagine if you're gonna be helping to direct uh, triage and transfer of patients, it's really helpful to understand, you know, is this hospital that you're supporting is it uniquely overwhelmed or is the whole system overwhelmed? Because if it's if the whole system's overwhelmed, just trying to transfer, solve the problem by transferring people out isn't going to work. Uh, whereas if there's an opportunity to load balance, um, that might be the best choice for a sick patient. Uh, and so we we did a, a version of this. Uh, the ICU telemedicine sort of service wasn't the only component, and there was sort of an additional uh, element of load balancing and, and team of physicians helping to to triage transfers, and we weren't unique. 
there are many, many regions where some model of this was implemented. Uh, the Arizona surge line, if anybody is familiar with that, is a great example of that sort of combining uh, shared resources and situational awareness about um, regional capacity, along with telemedicine support uh, to patients who um, maybe were going to stay on in, in where they were uh, versus being transferred. There's a lot of promise uh, for ICU telemedicine during the pandemic, and of course, some challenges. The first was speed. So if anybody has implemented a major clinical program, certainly if you've implemented an ICU telemedicine program, you may know that often those things take months or even years of planning uh, to, su to successfully go from sort of conceptualization to implementation. Um, so that wasn't gonna work uh, during the pandemic. And so we needed to really do, frankly, in days and weeks, work that often took months and years. Um, so that took a lot of time uh, in a concentrated fashion and coordination. The second is cost. Um, so I mentioned that some models of, of ICU telemedicine can be quite costly. Um, and you can imagine for smaller hospitals, under-resourced hospitals, that before the pandemic may have been not feasible from a financial standpoint. And then if you layer onto that, the financial constraints from revenue losses during the pandemic, that it was just simply impractical to imagine sort of rapidly implementing a very costly program. So there needed to be some solutions to costs. Um, some, some was sort of discounts from um, existing vendors. And another is just sort of a more flexible model with lower costs. And then finally, staffing. So, you know, one challenge is, if you have a need for intensivists at the bedside, how are those people then also gonna work in a telemedicine capacity? And this is where I think uh, academic medical centers had a sort of unique role because academic medical centers have a lot of physicians who don't work a, a full clinical load because they also do research and other administrative work, uh, which could be flexed down, uh, particularly during the early phases of the pandemic when a lot of research was frankly just shut down. Um, and so we certainly leveraged that. We sort of upscaled our sort of total clinical FTE uh, work uh, to, um, to staff our bedside. And then we were also able to sort of leverage some of that to bring people into the ICU telemedicine pool. Um, we were fortunate early in the Pittsburgh region uh, during the, the first wave of COVID not to face overwhelming uh, surges of patients. Uh, we certainly had some busy hospitals, but we, we weren't overrun in the same way that we were concerned we might be. Uh, and so we had a little bit of bandwidth to think about, you know, what to do with the resource that we had stood up. Um, and so we uh, reached out to some of our colleagues that we sort of knew through networks um, in New York who were really struggling with an overwhelming number of critically ill patients. Uh, and, and provided some telemedicine support through a combination of just phone calls and occasionally video use uh, to non-intensivist physicians who are caring for critically ill patients. Our colleagues actually uh, in the Mayo Clinic who have uh, had a uh, telemedicine ICU program before the pandemic actually did something similar in parallel, unbeknownst uh, to one another. And then collectively, we just sort of described this experience um, in this article. Uh, after the initial phases of implementation. We, we learned a few lessons uh, from this experience, which I, I think was useful. Um, the first was that the administrative barriers that were eliminated or reduced early in the pandemic was really important. It really helped us rapidly implement this program. 
if you can imagine what was required to sort of take a, a physician practicing at UPMC and allow them to provide telemedicine support to a hospital in New York, normally that would require, you know, a New York state license, uh, privileges and malpractice insurance at the hospital where they're practicing. You know, those things take months, months, and we could do it in days because of the sort of um, the laws that New York passed uh, facilitated facilitating emergency care. Um, the second was that relationships still really matter, right? So just because you're trying to do something fast and there's a need at the bedside doesn't mean that you get a free pass on sort of cultivating relationships uh, that you need in order to, to facilitate implementation. In some ways, they're even more important, right? Because you're trying to get some someone who has no idea who's on the other end of the phone that they're going to be talking to or interacting with, um, and they need to, to try to use the service and trust that, you know, we're going to provide some sort of reasonable input. Um, and finally, uh, is that light, light, tech te light touch technology can work well. Um, we, we used a, a very early stage uh, technology platform, which I'll talk more about later, uh, that fundamentally was just really about connecting people who needed help, didn't have a lot of bells and whistles, and that ended up being okay. And most of the interactions that we had were just, were just over the phone uh, because we had direct access into the medical record. This uh, radiograph is actually from a small hospital within my own health system from an encounter that I had early in the pandemic. I got called at night uh, by a, a hospitalist physician assistant who, you know, didn't before the pandemic have a lot of experience taking care of uh, patients on ventilators uh, about this patient with COVID who was intubated, sedated, and paralyzed and uh, hypoxic, and the ventilator was alarming. Um, and so I called them back uh, and then was getting on video and I had this x-ray pulled up and this was from the afternoon and the endotracheal tube was at the thoracic inlet. Um, and so I was concerned when I looked at the ventilator and saw that there was a, a big leak uh, that the tube was coming out. And so the, in that hospital, the emergency physician in the hospital is who intubated at night and they came up and they reintubated the patient. And this patient walked out of the hospital. Um, and if, if that had happened in a different way and the way that that had been discovered was you know, through a cardiac arrest, uh, it seems unlikely that that would have been the outcome. So this is just sort of an anecdotal example of the potential benefits of expanding access to expertise in critical care, even if I'm not at the bedside to do anything uh, with my hands. We also had the honor and the privilege uh, during the summer of 2020 of participating in an effort from the, uh, from the De Department of Defense to develop a national telecritical care network. So the concept here is that you have a distributed network of intensivists uh, across the country who can be uh, mobilized through mobile technology to provide support to local, regional, or national emergencies uh, that need critical care support, including even on a battlefield, right? You could do a mobile support to someone on a battlefield or a ship. Um, Eventually, sort of our internal operations and our goals kind of diverged from, um, from this effort, and so we focused on our internal work, but this effort is ongoing, um, led by Colonel Pamplin and, uh, and Dr. Ben Scott, and it's really cool. You know, this is an idea that had been in existence sort of percolating for a long time, and the pandemic really catalyzed the resources uh, necessary to, to make it real. Uh, so it's exciting to think about, you know, where something like this will go in the future. Pivot now to talk sort of more specifically about our UPMC tele-ICU experience um, 
moving forward. So beyond that sort of initial development phase, you know, how has it matured and what does it look like now? For those of you who are not familiar uh, with the UPMC health system, uh, this is a, a map of it. Uh, it's large. There are over 40 hospitals across three states, more than 600 ICU beds and more than 6,000 hospital beds. This map shows the locations of the hospitals as well as uh, the, some of the transfer networks that exist. Um, and so you can see that it's quite geographically dispersed uh, and there is a, a large academic hub in Pittsburgh. And so it's, the, the, it's an example of the type of, of environment where um, projection of expertise through telemedicine as opposed to physically moving people across this large geographic area might be, uh, might be optimal. And it's one of the reasons that, that ICU telemedicine was particularly attractive in this uh, context. So our UPMC tele-ICU model, uh, we do provider-to-provider -provider consults. So there's a, there's a non-intensivist healthcare provider at the bedside. In some hospitals, it's uh, an internal medicine resident. In some hospitals, it's uh, an advanced practice provider, a physician assistant, or a nurse practitioner with primarily sort of a hospitalist background with some ICU experience. In some, it's frankly an ICU APP who functions nearly at the level of an intensivist. Uh, and in some hospitals, it's a, it's a hospitalist physician. So a wide range of, um, of experience. Uh, and it's really therefore designed to expand access to critical care expertise. We, we didn't conceive of this as a staffing solution. There are some ICUs where the telemedicine model is the staffing solution. <laughs> if a nurse has a question about a vasopressor or a nurse has a question about restraints, they call the same person. Um, and so in order to manage, you can, in order to manage the, the scale of calls you can, that you might get in that type of a model, you would need many more physicians to cover the number of hospitals that we cover. Um, we use an internally developed light touch technology platform called Safford Telecare. It's developed by UPMC Enterprises with input from us as sort of uh, subject matter experts. Uh, this this platform has now expanded to be used by multiple UPMC telemedicine service lines. And again, it focuses on technology as the facilitator of workflow and communication, as opposed to sort of a focus itself of the interaction. And we operate entirely within the UPMC health system. That's very helpful because it reduces the administrative barriers and costs of operating the program. We don't have to deal with you know, malpractice outside the system. We don't have to deal with credentialing outside the system. Uh, and so that's really helpful for us. So the, the tele-ICU consult volume, this is the monthly volume that, that we've had. Um, and it's really increased a lot as we've implemented in more hospitals. We now have a medium of nine or 10 uh, calls a night, um, at least, or sort of consults that get captured in Safra and sometimes with some additional communication uh, around that. Uh, during the height of the Delta and Omicron waves, we were very busy. Uh, we would often get, you know, a dozen or more or nearly two dozen consults in a night. You can imagine like most clinical work, it's not smooth, it's lumpy. Uh, and so it could get quite busy. Um, it was kind of like practicing whack-a-mole. Um, and it really gets you to focus on, you know, the, the major um, issues and not get necessarily too bogged down in the details. So why do we get called? Uh, we get called for new ICU admissions, particularly from, from uh, house officers or APPs. 
get questions about the ventilator. That's a time, for example, that I, I often use video um, because, you know, usually a, a resident or an ATP can relay the, the clinical history to me and I, I have, you know, access to EKGs and laboratory data and radiographs uh, through direct access to the medical record. Uh, but it's hard generally for someone who's not an intensivist to describe ventilator waveforms. Uh, and so I'll use that frequently if I'm going to make ventilator adjustments. Um, and worsening shock would be another reason that we get called. A lot of times, frankly, it's for reassurance. Uh, I find it, it's frequent that during an interaction, I, I make fairly minor modifications to the treatment plan. And a lot of what I'm doing is just reassuring someone who does not have expertise in taking care of critically ill patients that what they're doing makes sense. Um, if they're taking care of someone who's doing very badly, who's, you know, frankly dying, it's reassuring them that they've, they've done everything that they can um, and that there's not some stone unturned. Occasionally there is, you know, another intervention to be offered, but often it's just to provide support. So the workflow tool that we use is called Safford Telecare, developed by UPMC Enterprises. Uh, this is on the left a screenshot of the landing page, which looks much fancier than it did when we first uh, developed it. And on the right is a, a story out of Modern Healthcare's digital health and business technology platform, talking about uh, SAFR as a potential solution to some of the workflow and communication problems that exist with pagers and cell phones. The classic example of, that I give is, you know, for example, in those really busy nights, um, if you just get pages every time you get a consult or you get a call, phone call every time you get a consult, you have no idea whether the thing that's coming in is, you know, I have a stable patient with DKI I wanted to talk to you about, or like, you know, the patient's hypoxic and I'm bagging them uh, and I need help. Um, and so the lack of situational awareness is really a, a problem when you're trying to triage multiple competing issues and potentially needing to toggle between interactions. So this is what the, the tool, what the technology looks like. Um, on the left is a screenshot of like my desktop uh, when I'm working in the tele-ICU. This has more consults than would ever be pending at a time because I picked sort of the, the completed consults. But on the left, you can see there's sort of, there's a, a very uh, sort of course uh, prioritization that exists based on some questions that the, the person entering the consult answers um, and a very basic amount of of clinical information. And so I can use this information when I get, you know, two or three consults at the same time to figure out, well, who do I need to call first? Um, and then on the right is the mobile device platform. So we really tried to limit the amount of clinical information that gets entered into this uh, consult form because one of the sort of consistent pieces of feedback from the bedside and from me as a, as a working, you know, doctor is that typing things into computers drives me nuts uh, when it feels redundant. Um, and so we really tried to keep it very light just to capture the basic information that we need in order to very, you know, at a very coarse level triage the call and know, you know, who are we calling you about and at what phone number am I calling you? So, I'm going to talk now a little bit about some of the lessons uh, that I've learned so far. I don't know if there are uh, trainees uh, in the audience or, um, you know, faculty members shortly after fellowship training. There's a little bit of sort of a reflection um, from my experience over the last, you know, five or six years as an attending and, and now uh, growing into this role in ICU telemedicine. 
I'll come back again. I, I mentioned relationships before, but really the power of relationships, both within the ICU telemedicine world, but just sort of generally in the clinical environment. Um, this is a radiograph of a patient from, uh, I think, just after Christmas uh, of 2020, um, a 38-year-old who presented to a small community hospital with DT storm after a TCA overdose. Uh, I got called by the hospital's physician who said the patient had been having recurrent arrests, was getting CPR multiple times by the ICU nursing staff, um, and he was going to go talk to the family about the code status. Uh, and I was concerned because this patient had actually arrested in the hospital, uh, so so was neurologically intact when she came into the hospital and was getting CPR promptly every time. So I thought probably was was neurologically intact with a fairly reversible problem. I called the VA ECMO team. Um, who, uh, you know, I really had developed some strong working relationships with during uh, the, the worst phases of, of COVID because we made a lot of referrals to ECMO for COVID. I'm not an ECMO physician in our institution. ECMO is managed um, by our cardiothoracic surgery ICU colleagues uh, in conjunction with our CT surgeons. Um, but, but we worked very closely together trying to sort of select patients who were appropriate for ECMO with COVID. Um, so I had the person who was on call, I had his cell phone uh, in my phone, in my, in my phone. And I just called him and I told him the story. Um, and he thought that the patient would be a great candidate for VA ECMO. And so actually he and the cardiothoracic surgeon uh, flew up to this small hospital uh, in the middle of rural Pennsylvania and cannulated the patient for VA ECMO in that community hospital ICU, which I believe is the first time that anybody has been cannulated for ECMO in that ICU, particularly for VA ECMO. Um, and she walked out of UPMC Presbyterian two weeks later, neurologically intact. And um, so, you know, I, I think this is really an example, first, of just great CPR <laughs> and great medical care uh, by everybody involved, but also the, the ways that the relationships that you build within clinical medicine can really make patient care better. Uh, and change outcomes because, you know, because I had this person's cell phone number in my phone and I didn't have to go through an operator and I kn they knew who I was and I knew who they were, there was just a level of trust that really greased the wheels of getting this thing moving. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, I've, I've, my, my cell phone directory really has grown as I've become an attending and particularly during COVID when we really collaborate, co collaborated a lot across you know, departments and programs uh, for critically ill patients. Um, and I really think that makes a difference uh, for patient care. Um, I also learned a lot about change management during the implementation of ICU telemedicine programs. And there's sort of a story of two hospitals here. One is a, a rural community hospital, which before this program, their nocturnal coverage was some amalgamation of hospitalists, but also just direct phone calls from nurses to the rounding intensivist. And you can imagine, you know, this is a person who was like rounding in this small hospital for 10 or 12 hours a day for a week at a time. And then when they went home, they, every night they would get multiple phone calls. Um, and so that was really a driver of dissatisfaction and burnout and turnover uh, in, in the, the intensivist staff in that hospital. And so the move to the tele-ICU was really perceived as an increase in service, was people were happy about it, and it was quite smooth. It was, there wasn't a tremendous amount of work that needed to go into sort of implementing this program. Uh, in another hospital uh, that was in a different part of the system, before the tele-ICU, there was an in-house moonlighter. Um, and that person was really well-trained and 
but often, frankly, underutilized because the volume in that hospital just wasn't high enough that they were busy all the time. Uh, but what they did a lot of different things. And so implementing an ICU telemedicine program required a significant change in the roles of a lot of people in the hospital. Um, and that was hard. And it required a lot of collaboration with leaders within that hospital from multiple different sort of areas of the hospital. And it required a lot of sort of coaching around change management. Um, but it's been very satisfying because, you know, now I think it's running really well. Uh, and we, we, um, collaborate with uh, hospitalists, advanced practice providers who primarily take, take care of the ICU patients, and they, they have learned a tremendous amount um, because they take care of the patients and they consult us. And, and, you know, when they're learning early in their sort of phase after their initial sort of onboarding, they call us very frequently, at, but they learn. Um, and so they're getting on-the-job training um, and really maturing as a program. And so that's been, been really interesting to, to see and, and learn from. Another thing that I think the ICU telemedicine program has, has helped us with is the integration of critical care services across this large health system. So before the pandemic, there was this entity called the ICU Service Center, which still exists today. Um, but it was really kind of more of like an academic hub, providing expertise, putting out guidelines for care, you know, and having more sort of individualized relationships with hospital leaders and ICU teams and, and others within the health system, but not as much in a coordinated fashion. And now the service center is really sort of an engine for clinical operations integration to facilitate high value care in, in multiple ways. And sometimes high value care is like keeping a patient who's dying of multi-organ failure in the community with the support for the physicians taking and the family to help them, you know, make sure the care is good and communicate effectively about sort of the prognosis. Um, whereas, you know, historically, a lot of those patients would just come to our Quaternary Medical Center, uh, and many of them, if not all of them, would die, um, but they'd die far from home. So that's an example of, of one way in which an integrated system can support, you know, high-value care that patient-centered that doesn't necessarily involve just sending everybody to an academic center. And one really important piece of that is critical care support at night, right? Because if you have a rounding intensivist, but that person leaves, people are really uncomfortable with, you know, someone with ARDS on 12 of PEEP in the middle of the night because they're like, what do I do if there's a problem? Um, I don't know how to manage a ventilator. And that's a great example of access to this sort of expertise is really important for that kind of uh, a clinical integration. There's lots of other examples, but I think that's sort of the most sort of salient one for this purpose. And then finally, um, or sort of uh, penultimately, um, the issue of healthcare worker burnout is, is really a big one. Uh, it's, it's affecting all areas of our workforce, not just physicians. And I'm not going to pretend that, you know, ICU telemedicine is a panacea for burnout. Uh, but as I talked about, there are a lot of hospitals where the model is, you know, a pulmonary and critical care or a critical care physician rounds during the day in this small hospital, goes home, and gets phone calls at night. And, you know, that's a really not sustainable way of practicing. Um, and so we've gotten feedback from many physicians working in the hospitals that we support that the availability of this service and the protection of their sleep um, has really helped them have a sustainable job. 
Uh, and in fact, the availability of support from our uh, tele-ICU service is featured in lots of recruitment ads that I get through my Gmail account um, from hospitals in my own health system uh, that are featuring the availability of this for after-hours care. Um, and finally, is just sort of a reflection about just, you know, enjoying the journey in front of you. You know, if you had asked me five years ago uh, when I was a year or two out of fellowship training, if one, I would have gone through a global pandemic, and two, if I'd be running, you know, an ICU telemedicine program for this large health system, I, I would have had no idea. Um, but, you know, because what I was doing a year or two after fellowship, uh, there was one year where across 12 weeks of clinical service, I rounded in seven different ICUs. That was really hard. <laughs> you know, I had to learn how to function and build relationships really quickly uh, in all of those different ICUs so that I could take care of patients uh, and just enjoy going to work. And it turns out that learning how to build relationships quickly and work with different people in different ICU environments is a really good skill to implementing an ICU telemedicine program, which has to support patients and providers in lots of different ICUs with different capabilities and people I've never met. Um, so, so that's just, I think, a good example of one of the ways in which just, you know, doing and in finding a way to enjoy the thing in front of you and, and take from it something that you can learn uh, is ultimately going to prepare you for whatever opportunity comes up in the future. And the beauty of academic medicine in sort of large academic centers is opportunities come up all the time and you just don't know what's going to come up in the next five years. There are a number of open questions about uh, ICU telemedicine from my perspective. The first is which model or models work best in which context. Um, and one thing that's, I think, really important to recognize is, you know, we now have problems with bedside staffing. Uh, there's financial constraints that health systems are facing now, I think, during the pandemic for a couple of years, sort of the costs of healthcare and operating margins kind of were secondary, but now are very much not. Um, and so, you know, one thing that I think remains to be seen is whether uh, resource-intensive models that have a lot of staffing and a lot of costs associated with them is sort of whether those are sustainable for health systems, and, and we don't know. Um, the second is what's the best way to teach healthcare professionals how to practice telemedicine? We haven't figured that out yet. You know, my personal bias is that the first thing is you have to learn how to be a doctor at the bedside, um, and then it's sort of figuring out what's different about telemedicine. Um, Third is, you know, as I mentioned, are the ways that we can reduce the cost to make it more approachable. And relatedly, can telemedicine help reduce disparities in access to critical care expertise? Um, that, I think, also remains to be seen. I think there's a lot of things in healthcare that get held up as, you know, solutions to disparities uh, and often end up just sort of either not changing or sometimes even perpetuating the disparities because of differential adoption. And we don't know the answer to sort of the impact that that's gonna have you know, during and after the pandemic going forward. Um, I'd like to say thank you to a number of people, my mentor, Jeremy Kahn, um, Rachel Sakowitz, who's the CMO of the Service Center. Um, she's a, a former executive in a ICU telemedicine company. And so I really learned a lot from her. Uh, Dr. Emily Brandt is my uh, associate director of the program. And then my division and the Department of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. And then just a huge team of people from an administrative and clinical standpoint and the tele-ICU and at the bedside all across our health system. Um, so thanks very much for the opportunity to speak. Um, I'm happy to answer questions uh, if there are any.